Thank you so much for coming in this morning. Um, I know there's a million other things you could be doing, so we really appreciate and value your time here. I'm Alexandra Suarez. I'm the COO of Data Garden. You, I think you can see our device up on the screen there. Yep, we make PlantWave, uh, which is a hardware product that connects to an app um, on the phone, most likely in your pocket. Uh, it converts plant biofeedback to music. It is a hardware device. Uh, I'm joined today with Alex and Christopher. Alex is the CEO of AJ ProTech, and Christopher is the CEO of Opus. Uh, we will obviously be discussing hardware, which is also known as consumer electronics, um, not what you use to build your furniture at home. Uh, I'd like to pass it off to Alex to introduce himself and Christopher to follow, please. Hello, everyone. My name is Alex. I've been an engineer myself for over a decade, uh, developing high-volume industrial and consumer electronics. 2014, decided to start AJ Protect, a product development company to help startups and global companies create new products. And since then, we've been going, uh, we've been working with uh, anywhere from small pre-seed startups all the way to Fortune 500 companies, helping them create new hardware products, IoT, consumer electronics, uh, selecting components. And in the last couple of years, it's been especially important as we go into chip shortage, how to create new products and launch them while the semiconductors are not available. So I have good experience with developing and scaling up in production. Hello, my name is Christopher Schenk. I am the CEO and co-founder of Opus. Uh, we are a Austin-based mental wellness brand. Um, our flagship product is Soundbed. It's a platform you lie down on, combines sound and vibration to reliably help shift your emotions in as little as seven minutes. I've been developing products um, for the better part of 15 years, from design, development, to manufacturing, go-to-market. So then I decided to launch a, a product and a company in 2020 during COVID. So I've had a lot of opportunity to understand what it means to shift gears and have a lot of perseverance. So excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Uh, so of course, today, you know, obviously, we're here to discuss why hardware is hard. Uh, we'd like to kind of review the entire process, starting from your prototyping phase to kind of landing on your manufacturing uh, vendor supply chain, and then touching lightly on distribution. Um, with that said, you know, Alex, I'd like to start with you in terms of, you know, what are some initial steps you can take to, to make sure that you're approaching the prototyping phase in a way that's both, uh, you know, strong but also consistent with what you need to be able to meet with the electrical engineer and industrial designer? I think a lot of companies overstep the really the first the foundation of the product, which is talking to a client and actually finding the need. Before you start going into what component should I use or what color of enclosure should I use, first you should start with what problems are you trying to solve. Ideally, you want to know your customer. You want to talk to them. You want to know, that this, is, this is John. He's 40 years old. He's living in Wisconsin or Los Angeles or whatever. And what is he doing? So put together their the client persona first, and um, what what problem are you solving? Then from, from that problem, you put on the specification for the product. So again, before you start any engineering, any prototyping, you should put together their document describing how your, how your product should operate. So that's how you start. And then you go on with the MVP. So it's really important to be really iterative, to iterate often and fast. You know, in software, when you create, it's very often to use sprints, like two-week intervals when you create new products. They're 
it's a myth for hardware. You cannot create a new product in a in a two weeks. But again, you can t you can prototype something, and it can be as small as you know this form of enclosure, like just 3D print it and show it to client. Uh, I mean, uh, to your customers, or different size of display, or different position of the button. So ideally, you want to create new prototypes at least once every two weeks. Ideally, every week, and show it and show them to your clients. That's how you start with a prototyping often. Wonderful, thank you. And Christopher, just wanted to hear a little bit about your experience as well, uh, considering you are have a little bit of a different background focusing on a single product now. You know, what was that prototyping process like for you? Yeah, so it was really interesting for us. Um, we, we didn't actually, the, particularly this company, we started out as a big passion project, um, doing an events kind of set up around like Burning Man in a Box. And we were doing these different installations, and one of those installations happened to have been this idea of creating an immersive meditation. And um, we had a six-foot Jaguar head with 3D projection mapping, and the idea simply was we wanted to, as you're, uh, we had these headphones that you would wear, uh, to allow people to feel the vibration of the Jaguar growl. Um, and then what we did is we created these, uh, you know, they actually use them in, in movie theaters and such to create vibration is a, a, a device, an, called a transducer. So it's basically a speaker that you attach anything to it. Um, and it, sorry, anything you attach it to, it sends the vibration and, and creates like a vibration, vibration feeling. So mm -hmm. it makes like movies and, uh, you know, like Honey, I Shrunk the Audience at, at Disneyland feel more immersive. Uh, and that was what we were originally going after. And then we had so many people talking about um, that particular experience that we decided, hey, let's just make that thing more comfortable and keep doing cool events. Um, fast forward, we, we, that was the earliest prototype of what we now call Soundbed. Um, so we had a kind of initial idea that came from that um, that we just kept evolving on. And we, this was in like 2019, actually South by 2019, when we did this pop -up, first pop-up event. Uh, and then we spent the better part of a couple of years trying to figure out what we were going to do with that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that experience really turned into, you know, I, I would really um, echo what Alex is saying, is that at that, at that moment it was like, well, what would this become if it was it was for uh, what? Who is it for? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and at the time, we thought, well, um, something like this would be really expensive, and so we should definitely work with like uh, the retail side of things. Yeah. Um, and you know, nothing. Everything on the market was like anywhere from like five grand, ten grand. And so it was like, well, clinics would pay for this. Mm -hmm. um, and so we we did. Uh, we actually started partnering with a pilot. Um, uh, with a ketamine clinic here in Austin. And uh, that was actually the beginning, early 2020. Uh, and then uh, suddenly lockdowns happened. And so we found ourselves sitting at my place, uh, kind of stuck in lockdowns with my co-founder uh, and realized, wow, well, no one has access to wellness things. And we had this thing that we were using and I didn't have access to flow spas or anything else that I was typically using. So mm -hmm. big aha moment, we was like, let's go direct to consumer. And so we switched gears and that immediate moment, all of the complexities and challenges of this product had better work for the direct-to-consumer market was that biggest validation moment that we had. Mm -hmm. And so we had to first and foremost put out the avatars, define if it, this is going to solve for them, what is it going to be? Mm -hmm. And we realized it needed to be something that didn't take up a lot of space in your living room uh, and needed to look good uh, and it needed to be accessible from a price point. So mm -hmm. at that time, uh, Peloton was actually exploding because everyone was stuck at home. So we were like, well, it's to be like the Peloton of emotional fitness. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of really ran with that. Um, and then we started to actually work with um, a couple of different agencies, one focused on industrial design, uh, and it kind of got us through the engineering side of things. But we knew that there was a macroeconomic uh, challenge that was going to continue to be an uphill battle. So 
we leaned in on really validating the market product market fit and uh, the proof of that concept first. Uh, mm -hmm. So we built that industrial design, and that really kind of set the pace to allow us to get a lot of things done. Wonderful. What a story, you know, launching a hardware product in a pandemic. We also know? thought it was going to be like another think, a year and a half and we'll launch. And oh, yeah, no. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, us too. Hard. Yeah, yeah, no, it took about, what, three times the amount of time we thought it was going to, Joe? <laughs> That's our CEO over there. Yeah, yeah with hardware products, you know, whatever you think is going to yeah. cost is going to be double. Whatever you think it's, is going to take yeah. is going to be double. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just be okay with it. And also, um, yeah. whatever your engineers tell you, double that. When exactly. Double that. Well, on that note, I wanted to actually ask both of you, you know, looking back into different prototyping processes you've both been through throughout your careers, you know, what are some takeaways that you found, you know, looking back that you wish you would have known from the beginning, you know, just starting out? What are, what are some things that we could offer, you know, these wonderful folks here this morning? Uh, just a, a sort of word to the wise as we all embark on our hardware journeys. Yeah, that's a good question. I think what's really important is to understand that whatever we do here in the US is going to be manufactured somewhere else. So understanding the mentality, understanding how the product is actually built on a factory early is really important because it affects all your design decisions, all your test decisions. So you should start talking to manufacturer early, start checking how they produce things, what is available, because you can come up with any creative design, any creative component, any great part which you, which you can get on DigiKey next day. But what's really important, if the factory can get it, cost efficiently in China or whatever you manufacture it um, for production. So start talking to manufacturer early and um, they can give you really productive feedback. For example, a simple design change for your enclosure can reduce the cost of tooling your fixed expenses by 10, 20, 30, 40,000. So really talk to manufacturer early, get their feedback. And the second part I want to touch on is at the same time as you talk to manufacturer, the design company you work with or your internal team should be the one controlling all the files. So it's, you know, a lot of Asian manufacturers are amazing at manufacturing products at scale. At the same time, they might be not as good with creativity. So while it's very tempting to come to a factory and ask them, can you design this for me and manufacture it for me? They're gonna take it, they're gonna give you very low price and you're gonna be, wow, I'm gonna go with them, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna ask them to design my product and then manufacture it because it's gonna be cheaper than, do it, than doing it in-house. They're gonna give you a low six-figure ticket to design it, but what you're gonna be lacking at, it's, it doesn't come for free. The manufacturer will be the one controlling your files, and if you decide to switch factories later on, or you wanna scale and onboard different manufacturer, it's gonna be really tricky. So being able to control the files, being able to control the product, and just get the feedback from manufacturers probably was my biggest takeaway in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, thank you. Christopher? Yeah, I would add, uh, add to that that um, it really is about understanding that there's so much uncertainty. You know, I think, again, mentioning the macroeconomic environment, it's just, it feels like, you know, with the stuff that just recently happened with SVB Bank, uh, oh, you know, God. which was like the 50% yeah. of all tech companies in this space and startups, uh, you know, and while that's, you know, very quickly resolved itself for the most part, uh, it's an echo. It's an echo of like the challenges that you do face. Um, and, and I would just, you know, kind of going off of what you were saying, it, it's really the proof of concept, you know, getting that prototype made um, early on, you know, you have the idea, you have the avatar, but then get one made and 
have that one thing made and start working on the feedback of what you know that helps to solve for the things that get you through the rest of it. Because the other thing I would just, it's like, you know, maybe it's cliche, but it's like minimum viable product is mm -hmm. actually an echo of something that's like, if you start with that mentality and surround yourself by, with really smart people who have done the things very similarly that you've done. Like for us, we combined, um, you know, the tech, it was like a, a furniture and, and tech and wellness. And so we, we actually partnered with uh, an agency called Fuse Project um, because they had had very specific competencies in furniture, tech and wellness. And so they, and they were mostly just industrial design. And so that was actually the first thing we heavily invested in was solving for that biggest problem that consumers would see that thing, the biggest objections, because when we had our earliest prototype, it was off the shelf parts with a tattoo chair, um, you know, and we, everything was just, yeah, it was, it was a, it was very garage based, right? Yeah. But then everyone looked at this thing going, oh, that's amazing. And I don't know where I'd put it, you know, and, and that was the, we needed to solve for that. And I, I think that being the thing that we focused on first, we've carried that through. And, and the reality is it got probably 20 times more complex along the way. Mm -hmm. We've bumped into more issues that we thought that we were gonna be closer. I mean, we did a public launch in 2021 um, and, and we, we had imagined that we could try to get a couple um, thousand pre-orders and we got a thousand the first month. Uh, you know, we got 11,000 pre-orders to date. And so it has been this kind of like, from, from my role, um, always about the promises that you make to all of the people that help you along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the expectations that you set for yourself mm -hmm. uh, and then bringing people in to help you solve for those problems, it, it's been that kind of relentless path to the success of what we started out with mm -hmm. that um, you're gonna bump into issues. Like it's, it's just, um, you just have to get really good at, at surrendering to those things. But the mm -hmm. supply chain, the, you know, having the people help you do those things. And I know mm -hmm. we, I don't know if we completely touched on that. Um, I know we talked about it before, which is just, you know, the, the idea of what it means to work with someone versus trying to do it yourself, mm -hmm. um, doing things exactly. in house, yeah. um, you know, the, the carpet can be pulled out from underneath you if you have critical components that suddenly have long lead times or massive increase in price. Mm -hmm. um, so we've seen that a few times. And so having, you know, like I said, surrounding ourselves from advisors, you know, investors and, um, you know, different agencies, consultants, um, like we had our consult you know, agencies and stuff that we were working with and we would hire someone that was like new product in introduction expert that would come in to just validate certain periods of that process mm -hmm. um, because it's just checks and balances along the way. And um, you, you can get there, but you have to really connect with the why of what you're doing mm -hmm. um, and, and solving for as much of the validation early on gave us that faith. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that that was a really important piece for us that really held on to along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. On the note of creativity in your prototyping process and getting to that MVP, I really want to look at the relationship between the electrical engineer and the industrial designer. I feel like, first of all, what we learned in the process is that we wish we would have been able to bring in an industrial designer earlier on with the electrical engineer to sort of determine what those non-negotiables were with the electrical components to then be able to design for that and around that. Um, with that said, you know, what can we offer these folks here in terms of, you know, just guidance on, on when to bring an electrical engineer, when you should start getting the two together, you know, the industrial designer, to have those conversations and, and really push the boundaries of your product? Great question. Um, a lot of engineers, uh, they restrict with the ownership, whatever they do. So if you speak to mechanical, he's going to be saying mechanical is a more important. Electrical is going to be the same for electronics. So it's really essential to have the project manager who is in between those. Mm -hmm. So in my experience, it's never the case when any 
when engineers can just solve themselves. It should be a product owner or project manager deciding what's important for client and driving those decisions. And especially right now when the products are becoming smaller and smaller and more efficient, you really push the boundaries of what electronics can do, both electrical and, and mechanical. Ideally, again, you start with uh, what client needs, what is the ideal client, and how they would interact with the product. That's where you start, and then you start selecting components for that. So come in with a look, with industrial design, the sketches, the renders. Once you get that, yeah, my clients love how it looks, they like uh, the shape, the size, the dimensions, then you start putting things together. So it's really not just you finish industrial design and then you go to electronics, it's a continuous process. Mm -hmm. Because as you, as you integrate electronics, there's gonna be a desire, you know, a push. Can we change design just a little bit here so you know, I can fit this, this display better or this battery better? And at the end, if, you, if ID, ID people is not in a process, in a loop, you're gonna end up with completely different, and you look at it one year later, oh, it was a great design initially, but then it just became some, something else. Mm -hmm. So ID people yeah. start the process, hardware people do integration, but ID people should always be on board, even if it's like just one hour a week or mm -hmm. a few hours a week, to be able to control that you don't go different direction. Exactly. With a yep. product. Absolutely. And that all comes down to, you know, where your buttons are placed, you know, all the things that show up on the customer side. Really, you know, is that is that relationship between the two, right? Christopher, what was your experience in, in working with those two positions? Yeah, so before Opus and, and developing Soundbit, I had had some experiences, and as you were saying that, I remember I was connecting back to moments where we bumped into a lot of that. Um, so going to this project, I actually knew that, you know, m building a company... Uh, really starts out with surrounding the right people around you. I said earlier, you know, um, and it's it's about core competencies. And one of the things I learned in the product development process is that it's important to try to create some level of um, the subsystems and keeping them as separate conversations rather than friends that are coworkers. Mm -hmm. And so we actually found um, that was one of the things that was most attractive about Fuse Project because they only do industrial design. Mm -hmm. And then they, um, you know, then they work with the different engineers and the engineers we even hired as consultants or different agency teams. Uh, even though they did other parts, they had other mechanical engineers, we intentionally kept the team separate Mm -hmm. uh, to allow and then having the unified conversations mm -hmm. uh, and, and all around the same, you know, the industrial design, to your point, we'll, we'll take it forever. Another interesting <laughs> thing was um, we have, uh, you know, there's, there's actually everything from mechanical engineering. We have mm -hmm. plastic injection molded uh, parts. We've got custom um, metal machine parts. Uh, we mm -hmm. have 86 components in this thing. And I never would have thought that the most difficult piece would have been the soft goods, the, the mattress on the top. It's just this little thin mattress, but getting it to stay on and it yep. folds up and it was, um, and it's, it's a bit of with each engineer, at the end of the day, everyone's an artist creating something that they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so everyone is aligned on this one product idea. But as to your point, as you were saying, is that you, you kind of get to one phase um, and then you got to keep this iterative process back and mm -hmm. forth, uh, checks and balances. Mm -hmm. Because what we've had happen, uh, even this project was, was that you get to one, you know, everyone kind of makes their own assumptions. Mm -hmm. and, and when everyone can talk those through, you can kind of hear where those uh, objections and things that come up. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it really became a lot of trusting these individuals who are all really smart people. But if you have separate conversations, mm -hmm. um, they'll all kind of defend their own, their own category. Uh, oh, and yeah. that, rightfully so. It, <laughs> and, and that's what you want. And so that yeah. was, and if rather than it all being in house, mm -hmm. 
um, that you're having one unified agency conversation. It felt like even if you have one person that's different, and if you do have everything in one house, definitely hire some of these like new product introduction consultants mm -hmm. and and they can kind of come in and just every now and again check that progress or like you were saying the product manager uh, mentality and so um in the beginning it's hard to do all of that mm -hmm. but as long as you can get through the checks and balances place mm -hmm. you'll you'll set yourself up for better success with manufacturing wonderful yep I want to give advice for, for the engineers and project managers out there. It's really natural for entrepreneurs to, to understand the entire picture, but for engineers and for technical people, my advice is always have a bigger picture in mind. So understand how what you are doing affecting the entire product. And it's really the difference between an engineer and the engineer which can do it for scalable products is to have the bigger picture in mind. And you know, that might be as small as, oh, if I put this chip, if I put this component in a product, how is it gonna change the user experience? How is it gonna change my compliance? How is it gonna change how the factory is manufacturing the product? So having the bigger picture in mind also helps team to work together. So if electrical engineers understand that if whatever they're doing is changing mechanical design and it's going to be more expensive to manufacture, that is a big step up for technical people to understand that. And again, that's really what differentiates just an engineer from the great person who's going to be an asset for your team. I would add Absolutely. one more little piece to that is sure. the, the power of generation one. It was like the, the MVP, the point that you're saying, it was we started to, as we started getting through this point, is that you know, we really encourage, you know, the engineers, you know, they are, they are the experts, the artists in what they do, mm -hmm. and you want them to think big. And it allowed us to, as we got through it, solve four things and have ideas that we then realized we, we don't want to completely ignore that thing, but could that be the next generation? Mm -hmm. Can we design this and then connect with that? Um, again, really, especially with our, some of our senior engineers, we've, we've worked now for three years. It's just as important in their electrical systems mm -hmm. as it is the soft goods and the, and the soft you know, side of things. But mm -hmm. um, in industrial design, would, they're at the very beginning, but then they you know, connect in the, you know, the full end. We had little, little features that we just decided that will go next generation. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Yep. Managing expectations <laughs> is really is, is really, really critical. Yeah. So for the product owner or for project management is to, yeah, is to set what is the minimum set of features which is going to satisfy our client. Because you need to have a revenue, you need to have, regardless how great your product is, the market will prove if it's great. So you want to get there as soon as possible, ideally in the first one to two years as your development, see the feedback because market will give you a lot more feedback than all of your engineers combined. So decide what they want, figure out what they want, get there as soon as possible and start planning. Future proofing can be done as well. So their um, remote firmware updates, for example, are must these days. So you wanna get the product which can be further updated either with accessories or with um, with the remote firmware updates. But again, you want to get there Gen 1 SAP, and then you can push small updates here and there because no product is perfect when it just launched. Yeah, that's something that's so key to remember. You know, it's a constantly iterative process. Uh, with that said, let's say you get to your, your MVP, you're happy with that, you're ready to move forward into manufacturing. Where do you start? Where do you find these, these vendors to work with? How do you start building your supply chain? I would add, just yeah. jump in there, I know, because you probably have a lot more to say to this. Um, 
I would just say you'd start it in the process. Like the engineers should be absolutely confirming the components. We, we found that you know, custom components and those things require a lot more complexities and risk along the way. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we, we certainly started with off the shelf parts to mm -hmm. help validate things and understand that. Um, and that the product can have cost down and, and you know, we can design for things in the future to, to make it what you want, mm -hmm. um, but was really starting that process early on mm -hmm. uh, just to really validate everything that can be done. I think that's super important mm -hmm. to then bring the concept of the product to a place for, for manufacturing. You should have pretty much validated its manufacturability. Exactly, and hopefully tested it a whole bunch too. <laughs> yes. We hear it a lot. I have a prototype and I just need a little bit of update to make it manufacturable. <laughs> Making it manufacturable is an order of magnitude more complex than making it work. So how to approach manufacturing? So first of all, you have to understand that products built for different industries have to be manufactured in different places. So let's start with the categories. It can be just a generic consumer electronics, which is really inexpensive device, where the primary objective is to, is to make it really inexpensive. So if you are that, in that category, most likely countries like China will be, will be your choice. If you are designing uh, premium electronics, like a couple thousand dollar product, uh, there are some other countries in the world which do it e even better. For example, Taiwan, which is, is you know amazing for manufacturing high-tech products. And there is a medical or security or military products. They have a potential to be manufactured domestically here uh, because the price is not a deciding factor having the control over the process is, is critical. So once you know what your product is, which category are you in, you know approximately the, the geography of, of manufacturing. Then with, uh, with those manufacturers, there is a big subset. There, is, there are thousands and thousands of factories in China, for example, right? How do you select? So first, you should look at the factory which are manufacturing something similar. And the reason why it's important there is a lot of tooling, a lot of experience required for manufacturing, for testing. And if fa factory, for example, doing audio products, speakers will be a great asset for you if you are in audio business because they will have their tooling, the chambers to test it. So you're going to spend much less than a generic manufacturer which need to build it from, from scratch. So um, working with a factory which is... In, in, similar, in similar product is essential. But look that they don't manufacture something too similar because they might be a, a conflict of, of interest. So, and then how do you um, approach their um, selection? You never jump in on the first factories you see you know, just because you like them. You go to uh, the um, uh, sites like Alibaba where you, where you can find those manufacturers. You start with narrowing down maybe 20 manufacturers or so, like, like a big list. You look at them, you look at their portfolio, you, um, look at their factories. You, you narrow it down to five to seven factories. For, with them, you go through RFQ process, you uh, send them your uh, NDA, you get them to quote your product. And with those five to seven products, you're gonna select two or three, not one, but two or three factories which are your, fast cho uh, which are your first choice. And with them, you go through their, uh, basically next to the manufacturing. Always have a second factory in mind if the first one falls through. Never say no. Critical. 
Yeah, but always have the second one or third one just in case you need to scale or you need to sw switch gears. And just be careful with UIP. Ideally, you know, and um, the biggest question I've been asked is how to, um, is how do I make sure that the factory does not steal, does not copy my design? And, you know, there are a few ways of doing that. Ideally, you want to... So, uh, you want to split their manufacturing of your product in a, in a few places. So there might be one factory doing, for example, the enclosure for you, and second factory is doing electronics for you, and a third one assembling. So they might not even know what the product is before it gets assembled, and the finally uh, the final place puts their uh, put the software on. That's how you. If you're paranoid about you know someone copying your product, that's how you approach it. It comes with expenses, but again, it's a it's a way to go if you really want to make sure that you have that competitive edge. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. That's actually what we decided to do with uh, PlantWave. We have our products split across six different factories, all in China. They do a wonderful job. We've been working with them for three years, uh, and finding them initially was the same process. Went through, you know, isolated about three that I thought were the top and just started having conversations. Now, in those conversations, you know, in getting that pre-production sample, what are the files, like what's that package that you're bringing to the factory? What the fi files? Like all the- Yeah, what, 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 what should you have ready in order to get through the, the RFQ process? Hmm. Well, it depends on, I guess, what you're developing, but um, you know, having a lot of the CAD files, um, the assembly guides, and a PRD, product requirements document is like the most important thing. Like, what is this thing supposed to do? Yeah. Um, especially when you're working overseas, the biggest challenge that you have is in co the communication gaps, the shared understanding gaps, yep. because, um, you know, culturally there's a lot of differences and they're going to try to manufacture or make things more simple um, because they're also trying to compete in price. And so they're going to find the ways to make it cheaper. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, I mean, having documentation from the engineering team, mm -hmm. um, for us, it was like building the very simplified presentation documents that as it explains how the components come together. Mm -hmm. But I also um, definitely agree with the idea of the subsystems, mm -hmm. um, you know, different factories and have their own specialties anyway, but keeping them separate mm -hmm. um, and, and those different parts, the more that you can. Mm -hmm. and, and then at the end of the day, you end up having one final assembly um, mm -hmm. factory and that, that becomes the most important piece because you have to do that really, really well. Mm -hmm. And again, you can't make it perfect out the gate. So you kind of have to get move all the components, all of the different subsystems together, mm -hmm. um, and, and they'll all make different versions of things, and our engineers were testing, um, testing that process. The other thing that I would also, one of the big things that I learned along this path of developing things with manufacturers is, you know, start small really early on, mm -hmm. like order one, order five, order 10 of something, um, and even in different components, and just see their entire process through mm -hmm. way before you get to manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, you, that's, you'll just, a, that's a great point, yep. Yeah, like don't just make, if you already have an off-the-shelf thing, like you, you kind of have to understand their whole communication process. Mm -hmm. And and the, the, the reality too is that they're also not convinced that you're necessarily going to give them money long-term. So they're always trying to kind of, you know, validate Prove you as a customer. As well. yeah. yeah, and so, exactly. um, you know, that, that process of actually doing those orders and mm -hmm. even small on, small money uh, mm -hmm. is actually develops a relationship early on with the factories mm -hmm. um, you know it, especially in the era now where so many people are making um, you know direct to Amazon product brands and uh, being able to very quickly create you know Instagram ads and, and doing things there's a lot of new people trying to get into this space okay. of making products and so 
there is a, just as much as you're trying to find the ch get through that challenge of getting to manufacturing with suppliers, they're also trying to get through who's actually a real customer going to be a long term because you know yeah. success is binary with business in general. And absolutely, yeah, you know. and that part can be much more competitive, I think, than I initially thought as well. You yeah. know, you're you're trying each other out. Absolutely. So the more that, that PRD, that product requirement document, yep. the like here's this product and here's what it's supposed to do is like yep. the simplest thing that 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 actually starts the conversation right mm -hmm. um that doesn't have to get s super super technical by the time you are in manufacturing yep. that gets into many layers of the assembly guides and the different component testing you know subset systems it's it, it can get very complicated and it should and when you get there but in the beginning just understanding where you're headed mm -hmm. even in the very beginning once you get past kind of industrial design concept yep. is now you have that cheat sheet of we're aligned on an understanding of where we're going mm -hmm. absolutely yeah I want to give you a few takeaways we've learned over the years working with, uh, with manufacturers. First, there are a lot of um, software which we use here for project management. It might be fancy, fancy board, fancy timelines, everything. But China speaks Excel. So if you want to work with a manufacturer, you really simplify your communication down to Excel or for presentation. Everything you discuss with a factory is an Excel sheet. If you wanna, if you wanna describe something, you put Excel sheet. You don't write long emails. You you attach a document to email which explains everything. That's first. Second, the factory, um, wherever you think your product might cost, so you put together a list of components so you know how uh, uh, my enclosure costs this much, my battery costs this much. Jasmine, record please. Uh, so um, always. Oftentimes, companies forget their, the markup which factory puts. And this markup is often the percentage of your bill of materials. So, and it's, it can be somewhere from 20% to 100% depending on the factory. So the bigger your volume is, the less markup they're going to have. But again, it's going to be there. So, once, um, so when you're trying to understand how much it's going to cost, for example, it's $50 per unit and you can assume that factory markup will be somewhere in a 20 to a 25 dollar range mm -hmm. and the third one is how to make factory interested working with you long term because we think that we select factories <laughs> you know in in last few years the good factories select us be because you know they are uh, they are the one making decisions so if you're trying to work with a t uh, well, like with a tier 1 factory they can you know reject a a client like Google because they only bring uh, this many thousands of products per year. So their number, which I want you to uh, take away with, um, is the factory looking at at least one million dollar worth of goods of of bill of materials coming through them each year. So if you are below that, you're going to be you know later down in the priority list. So passing at least one million dollars, that's going to be basically your uh, your annual volume. So if your product costs, for example, $50, divide 1 million by 50, and that's going to be how many units you need to produce per year to make a good factor instead in you. If it's $200, you know, it's going to be four times less. So that is the, the magic number. And depending on the size of the factory, that number might go up and down. It's definitely going up with a tier one manufacturers, but at least that's going to get you through the door with them. And final one, their manufacturers are looking for stable recurring orders. Yeah. So if you tell them, I want to manufacture 10,000 units, the first question you're going to have, and then what? Because it, 
it, it's really expensive for them, and it's really, you know, they make money on recurring orders when they set up their process and manufacture. If you order one big batch once and then never come again, they're not going to come work with you afterwards. So try to split it in the smaller recurring batches, which they can produce on their machines, and that's how you can establish good relationship with the factory. Yeah, that's such a that's such a good point. That's exactly how we approached it at PlantWave. You know, our first order was 2,000 units, and I'm like, just wait, you know, we'll get to 10,000. And we just did this last year, but we've been in production for almost three years straight just to keep feeding them orders, to keep them with us, you know, to really approach them as, as our business partners as well. You know, they're not just people that are supplying something to us. They're, they're a part of this process, you know, a valued part of our team. Times when we were the one dictating what to do are well over, so manufacturers have a big say in how our products are designed and manufactured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would echo that. Um, I think, I think the, out of the two things that you mentioned about the million dollars or the long-term success, um, the, the consistent orders over time is, I think, the most valuable thing. Mm-hmm. I think um, you know, that was why I was saying early on, creating those relationships by ordering and, and just continuing to order mm-hmm. some of those samples, both to understand both ways, but giving them a little bit of money and showing them up front, mm-hmm. like that, that we want to be a good customer and build this relationship with you. Mm-hmm. But they get to see how you make your payments in time. So it's like, exactly. in that yep. beginning, order 10 of something, pay them right away. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, be ahead of that curve of the entire process of ordering something and receiving it and give them great feedback. You know, thank yous go a long way, you know, and I think building that relationship, it it starts early on. um, And and then absolutely, they want to know how you are going to become a big client of theirs. And and I think that I think year one, um, you know, I think a million dollars of bomb could be challenging for most, uh, especially for, you know, tier one. Um, so what we found was actually working with um, agency partners that actually do a lot of that. So they work, basically, they, they essentially broker a lot of the different um, products. So they become the client uh, to a lot of these factories. Combined, they may have a million dollars that they're doing. And so some of their projects, they have a trusted relationship. And they also will help with that communication up front. But those things are, you know, it, can, it definitely depends on the, pri- the point you're at in your process, because mm-hmm. if you're still R&Ding a lot, that could damage their relationship. But, um, but yeah, I think in the, in the beginning, it's really just building that relationship early on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So let's say, you know, I, I feel like we could spend all day talking about the issues that would come up in manufacturing. <laughs> just know that it's a lot of deep breaths and hopefully some meditation and, you know, a good, good community around you to support you during those times. <laughs> Um, but one thing I just wanted to add, you know, too, that I found that was really helpful um, is just being available to them during their work hours. You know, if you're producing something overseas, it's important to be able to have a little bit of a back and forth, you know, so you're not just shooting off an email in your work hours, getting one while you're sleeping, waking up. And sp- it just adds a lot to your timeline, a lot more than you think. You know, it sounds simple, but I, I found a lot of success in just being awake when they are, you know, and making sure that we have that sort of working hours, you know. That is a great point that I know we haven't talked about even before this, yeah. this chat. Um, so it's really interesting because, you know, my product development experience over the years was like, you know, you hop over to China and it's like three times, maybe 10 times faster to be over there with them oh, in yeah. the factory. And then COVID, everything closed down in China was, has been the most strict. Literally until January 8th, yep. there has been nobody going into the Chinese borders. 
So that got had to get really creative. You were you were saying that they speak Excel spreadsheets, but they also like video communication of yeah. looking at something and, and talking about it and then sending notes. Uh, someone will help them translate those things, and yeah. then they're doing the same thing um, because you know you have to try to close. What does it mean to virtually be in a factory? Mm-hmm. And I think that that communication that. Um, organization of that feedback loop really helps to expedite the process of getting to the same place um, because it is absolutely true that by the t- you know 8 p.m. is like the golden time yep. over there because it's like 10 a.m. here uh, sorry 10 a.m. over there is is, is 8 p.m. here uh, so yeah having some late nights but having that kind of face-to-face zoom um, looking at the product and talking about it together um, very 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 important along with the spreadsheets totally agree with that too um, but I think that that iterative process of of again that that if you go back to the relationship part, mm-hmm. it, it shows up, it shows that you're willing to show up, and yeah. I think that the the idea of what it means to go through a day and not get back to one of their emails before you go to sleep, you just lost four days of of entire process. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, especially yeah over the weekends and everything like that. You know, it could be a week before they get back to you. Um, but with that said, you know, obviously, like I said, we could spend probably an entire week talking about all the things that could go wrong. Uh, but let's say you get through production, you know, everything's all good, you're done with your factories, and you want to get to the point of distribution. You know, I'd love to just touch briefly on the certifications that you have to get for hardware to sell here uh, and internationally. If we, Alex or Christopher, if you want to talk a little bit about that process? Yes, compliance is taxes. So, you know, they tax your products, essentially. That's what compliance is. And it's really essential to understand how you're going to be sell and distribute because that uh, gives you an idea what compliance you might need. So if you're selling direct to consumer, that's the best because you are the one making sure it's safe and there is only minimal number of compliance required. If you sell for big distributors, for big retailers, they're going to ask more. They're going to ask for UL. They're going to ask for for additional parts. So understanding how you're going to sell is defines your compliance. For majority of products, if they have any sort of electronics inside, FCC, uh, to making sure the device doesn't produce any harmful EMI, electromagnetic impulses, is uh, is there. Uh, using pre-certified modules helps a lot, so you can save on on compliance. Yeah, it, it is a, a bit more expensive. Yes, it's a bit bigger, but you save five, ten, twenty thousand on the certification fee. If you can avoid uh, doing UL. That's again, that's a big, big save time and money. But if you go through Walmart or through Amazon, they're going to require UL. Design process is, again, if you can use a subsystem which is pre-certified, for example, your power supply, if you use pre-certified power supply, again, you are much, much easier. So understanding uh, required compliance and trying to source as much of the pre-certified modules or parts is, is helpful. So if it's US, FCC, for sure. Bluetooth to get through the border, um, their UL if you sell for retailers. If you sell it in Europe, CE uh, is, go- is pretty much similar to, to UL. And those two, if you get uh, FCC, UL, and CE, you can sell in majority of countries. Some countries like Canada, they have their own compliance, but this is usually enough to get your product through the door. And really pay attention to trademarks. You know, like, uh, yes, you can get, you know, for example, HDMI. It's, it's ridiculous. 
it sounds ridiculous to pay them to use that in your product, but you can get in a lot of trouble if you start advertising your product, if you start putting on a trade show and not be in the alliance. That's basically, you know, again, if you work with a factory which already does that, it's helpful because they might be the one having, having that. But just showing up at the trade show with a product which HDMI and not having the license might put you down, you know, in a lot of problem with a alliance. US is very litigious, so be really careful with USB, Bluetooth, HDMI, everything else is, comes with the price. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Christopher? I don't have anything to add to that. Yeah. No. Cool. Yeah, our certification process was uh, fairly quick. I mean, they generally, you know, we hired a third-party facility. They did it for us. Uh, it is a pricey process, though. Um, for us, the FCC was around 10,000. CE is about another 10, 15. Uh, so just heads up as well. Um, with that said, you know, we have about 15 minutes left. So I think, do you all want to take some questions? Yeah. See? I'd love to pass it to y'all out here. Uh, what are some questions that have come up, if any? Does anybody have anything that they want to kind of get a little bit deeper into or anything of that nature? Don't be shy. I know it's early. Go ahead. Yep. Sure, Alex, you want to take it? Yeah, that's a good question. Yep. There are, um, you know, as with manufacturing, a lot of factories can do that, a lot of labs can do that. So if you are doing a generic product, for example, consumer electronics, there are a lot of labs which can do it here or, or in Asia. Asian labs will be much, much cheaper. You know, it can be like five times cheaper, like 2,000 instead of 10,000, for example, for FCC. So if you're not very picky about where you want to certify this one, um, doing uh, tests in China is, is appropriate. Some of your top tier clients might require that, you know, your product is tested with a, for example, German lab. Much more expensive, much more time consuming, but if it is what it takes to get them buy your product. That's what you do. Wonderful. Thank you. Did you have a question? Here, I'm going to give you this. Here, I'll come out to the crowd. Good morning. <laughs> Hi. Uh, speaking about a quality perspective, when do you know when your product is ready to be manufactured on scale? You know, you want to be in the market as fast as, po as, fast as possible? but then the quality is also a factor. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Guys? Yeah, I'll jump in there on that one. Um, Great. You know, that's why I was saying it's so important early on to get that product requirement document. Yep. Like defining success as does it do these things? Um, because if it's doing these things without any other major problems getting in the way of that, you can call your product done. And, and that, that's the most important part because you can iterate, you can refine, you can always try to get to there. But if someone's going to receive this out of the box, and feel like they got what they expected. Um, that that's a really important step to just really identify that. Um, and and of course, because if, if you just listen to what all the engineers say, they're not done. And yeah. that's that's the reality. Um, and and getting to that prototype, um, you know, understanding that there are. It's like is a consumer uh, on the other side of that going to? Um, is, are they going to have a problem with anything that you see? Um, and and then don't just take your opinion, but actually validate that. Get socialize that. Um, Early on, we, we've also really been a big of big part of like having early adopters. So we've done like pop-up events and actually invited our actual pre-order customers to come have the experience and did pre and post surveys, um, trying to understand their their objections and 
um, you know, things that we had thought no one said anything about that we feel are so important. And then we've specifically asked those questions and they're like, no, it's fine. Like, okay, well, I'm going to get out of the way then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome point. Alex? I'm going to add something to that. Yeah. It's going to come as a shock, but factory, when you're manufacturing, is not interested in doing quality control of your product. So your quality control might be much, much stricter than there because they just need interested getting through the door. Nothing replaces having the person at the factory doing the quality control for you. It should be third party agent or your employee going there before they ship, before it lands here, before you unpack. Oh, it's not what it means. Every time our clients manufacture a batch, they agent, the third party person or the employee goes there and sit at the factory for a couple of days, test their product before, before they ship. Because again, it's going to come as a shock, but only you as a product owner is interested yeah. in making sure a product is, is highest quality. And doing that, you can prevent shipping back and forth, timing, everything. Mm -hmm. So controlling it often and controlling it selectively, you know, the more and more you go in production, there is a, there's a thing called the uh, um, quality decay, you know, when you, then they start good and then they go worse and worse. So it should be continuous, not just, oh, I test it once when we start and then just ship it to me. You do it all the time, even, even if you work with them for years. Manufacturers are really good at finding ways to optimize it along the way without even telling you. So again, you are the one responsible to make sure they don't change something that affects your product in a negative way. That's such a good point. You know, when we, each production we've been in, it's almost like we're starting over, even though it's been the same product over the last three years. You know, we really approach it with a fresh look just to make sure that everything's working the way we expect it to, you know. Um, on the note of, you know, relying on your customers to let you know what experience is missing for them, that's critical, you know, because we take for granted our understanding and experience with hardware and what we think the product should be communicating to our customer base. But once it's in their hands, it's a different ballgame. You know, so the sooner you can bring in product testers, you know, to really work with it and really let you know what stands out the most, the better off you are for sure. Um, any other questions here? Going once, going twice, no questions. All right. Well, I think we're I think we're at the point of wrapping up here. Oh, did I go out out of the range? Uh, let's see. We got about ten minutes here. I can jump in here. and add a little bit more. To yeah, that, yeah. I figure know. we just keep going. Yeah. yeah um, yeah, that process of, you know, for me, it has been a big part of like just getting out of the way. You know, I think, yeah. you know, it, you can, you are the product owner, you are originally starting with that. But at the end of the day, these are, these are someone's paying for these products and, and you want them to love it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the more that you do that early on and continuously bring them through that process, mm -hmm. it will continue and you continuously get out of the way. It, it actually, your, your, your biggest responsibility when you're developing a product is the end result and the end result is the person paying for it and they need to see that value and if what you're doing is trying to create more with with assumptions that are not completely validated mm -hmm. then it's you've now increased the price where they don't want to pay for it you know and it's this kind of careful balance of what what that means and, mm -hmm. and I think just the more that you get early adopters and uh, you know get feedback surveys um, you know take your opinion out of it and yep. I think that that's a really really important part of the process to get to that gen 1 MVP um, mm -hmm. and, and that that is kind of a piece there. And another thing I know that we didn't really talk about was just funding. And, oh, you know, yeah, it's I mean, that's, you know, more, more <laughs> difficult to build a hardware products are expensive. There's a lot of risk behind what happens if these yeah. things get returned. Um, tariffs came in, you know, and now fundraising and, um, you know, crowdfunding and so many parts of that have become 
really, really difficult in the macroeconomic environment. Um, one of the things that we did early on was knowing that we were launching was 2020. Um, one of my co-founders actually, Austin's here in the crowd. Uh, we, we were in this point where we were just thinking, well, what are we going to do to bring this to the market? Mm -hmm. and, and this thing's going to be $2,000, and we don't know when we're actually going to ship. And so um, I actually had crowdfunding experience. I know we haven't really brought that up at all, but yep. um, you know, crowdfunding is a really powerful way to help do all of the things that we just talked about in terms mm -hmm. of validation. Um, it is a bit of a pay-to-play to use the platforms that are out there. Uh, and so what we did early on was just really create that initial concept and create some very simple advertising to then bring to our what we thought was the target customer. Mm -hmm. to see if what they thought and asked, followed up and asked questions, you know, mm -hmm. circled up people who were following those conversion uh, opportunities mm -hmm. and, and then really started to get that feedback early on. Mm -hmm. um, and also what we chose to do was not use one of those platforms. I had actually done five different uh, crowdfunding campaigns in my career uh, and found that if we were going to try to collect a $2,000 retail price product, um, you kind of have to give like 50% discount and then we're holding $1,000 for... For, for this long that we don't know. Um, turns out that was a really great move. We actually just did a Shopify setup of something similar. Uh, it allowed us to then not just have a 30 to 60 day campaign as well, uh, and only ask for a $199 deposit for a $500 discount. So we did that, that turned out to be a really incredible opportunity, but it didn't mean that it doesn't still have a lot of challenge with the biggest risk being delays. Um, but other than that, I, I think, you know, Fundraising is more difficult than it ever has been. You know, we've raised seven million dollars to date. We're in the process of raising four million dollars more right now. Um, you know, where we thought we would be to raise Series A, it's like it doesn't make sense to raise Series A right now. Uh, and so, you know, raising money when uh, you know the SVB bank, I know we brought it up a little bit earlier, kind of a big hot topic right now, is that you know the 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 risks of what it means to try to make assumptions that you'll just raise money or you just do these things, uh, the more you validate and have proof points early on. So for us, we had these surveys, we had you know, some Instagram ad uh, confirmation, then we had pre-orders, and we've taken it a little bit further to help us basically systematically eliminate our risks as well as our objections to, to investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. We did pre-orders as well. We were, you know, we're no strangers to delays from Plant Wave. <laughs> um, but we found a similar thing. You know, we just involved our customers in the process. You know, Joe actually sent out weekly emails to our customers, letting them know where we were every step of the way. And it honestly saved our business. I mean, we ran, I don't know, we were, what, six months late? We were late. It was very late. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep. Don't, He's saying putting his face on it so he knows that there's a human, brand. there's a team, yeah. you know, we're, we're with you, we want the product out there too, you know, it's, there's nothing you can do in those moments other than just try to lean on your community for understanding and be as honest as you can be. I want to add something. There is a big trend right now to, you know, to start charging for the app. So people buy your hardware, they pay you big money to buy this one and you also try to charge them for the app. So there is a very fine line between diversifying your income stream and making it, you know, removing any sense for consumers. A lot of wearables which I personally use, which were, you know, app was always free. But these days they sell you the hardware and then also want to charge you for the app. So my advice is, yeah, you know, the pro if someone is paying for the product full price, they should be able to use your app. No no questions asked. And it should be good functionality enough for the user. You only add premium in the app for extra features. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, some famous fitness product which costs $200 right now is 
charging you for subscription, and you cannot use their product without that. So it's a, it's a no-no in my view, and it's gonna pay you know a big um, discount for the product later on. So given that, if on the other hand you're giving the hardware for free or to very low cost, yeah, in that case it makes sense to charge for the app, but not trying to double dip it. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. You know, your customers expect when they buy the product that they can use it when they open it, right? And then it comes down to your team being able to upsell, you know, and create a sort of freemium model on your software that is exciting to them, you know, that makes them want to upgrade. You know, you're keeping them engaged. And that also, of course, helps your, lo your long-term value with the customer as well. I mean, that just really emphasizes the pressure points it puts on you. We did something very similar. So we have a, a, a free subscription and membership um, and then have a premium feature based on that. Mm -hmm. um, and it puts the pressure on you to do it really well, to, to do that. I, I would also add, um, you know, having just a hardware company today is more, it's just more difficult. Um, I think that's why, you know, you'll see companies like Whoop and Aura and a lot of the, you know, different hardware companies, they have some sort of software component um, because there's a lot of ways that it helps to provide sustainable, uh, it, makes it, it makes it more accessible because you don't have to charge as much more for the product to, to, to sustain as a company. Um, but I think that, that, um, that, that pushing the pressure of being able to have the freemium, you know, mm -hmm. being able to have a free product, mm -hmm. super, super important. Otherwise, pe because people are already having so many subscriptions yes. that they're trying to get rid of. Yes. So, you know, I, I think I was, I was talking about this recently. It was like, I just realized I'm paying $19 a month for uh, Netflix. And I think they just increased it to 21. I'm like, I signed up for $7.99 and it was worth it to me at that time. <laughs> and then now it's just like, do I actually use it enough and now that's $21 a month and I don't yeah. really watch TV that much. Yep. Um, you know, I'm starting to wonder, wow, I never thought I would say I need to cancel this. But, you know, it's there. And, yeah, and it's I, the, yeah. the value that you bring with the experience early on. And so if you can, for us, we intentionally knew we were going to be trying to make the hardware as cheap as possible. Um, there are payment plans out there, like a firm that's now partnered with Shopify that makes that mm -hmm. super easy. Mm -hmm. um, and there are ways that you can get the, the hardware to be affordable, mm -hmm. but to be sustainable long-term as a company, you don't want to be judged by your margins uh, yeah. for yourself and whatever team you're in. Yeah. Um, so being able to make things accessible, but that premium really um, being obvious as an experience, uh, mm -hmm. you know, long-term. Wonderful. Well, guys, I think we're, we're wrapping up here. So I wanted to just open up for any final thoughts or final questions from, from the crowd here. I just want to say thank you as well for sticking with us. We really appreciate you joining us this morning. Uh, any, any last words here? Yeah, I'll jump in. I, I think, um, you know, after being three years of being in this, pro this particular project, uh, you know, you, you, you come up, the challenges never end. You know, being hardware is hard. Yeah. It's funny, um, when when I first got invited up here and they said the topic is called hardware is hard, I'm like, it's literally part of my pitch. <laughs> you know, uh, hardware is hard. Um, and that, you know, the, the challenges, the, they, the stakes get higher, you know, the challenges mm -hmm. become greater, but, you know, deeply connecting early on with why you're doing something mm -hmm. and deeply being able to connect with the people whom you are giving it to and having just one person that can create that impact of the experience you're trying to create, whether it's you know just a consumer basic electronics that's solving a problem, mm -hmm. connect with the feeling of solving that problem, mm -hmm. and take that through every challenge that you get to. And yep. the more that you like, some of the challenges that we had super early on, I look back now and I'm like, wow, I was silly getting so stressed because now yeah, it's just oh yeah, no, yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't take it too personally. You yeah. know, nothing's gonna go the way you thought it was gonna go. I'll tell you right now, absolutely nothing. 
but it's your ability to be resilient and to roll with the punches and to know your why, you know, that's going to keep you going, you know, when you just feel like it's just, you know, why do you even start this in the first place, you know? Let me give you why and finish on a high note. Quoting Elon Musk, no one wants to do hardware, but if you don't build stuff, there will be no stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a wonderful time at South By. We really appreciate it. Thank you.